Okay. Welcome to You Talking with Greg. I am here with John Stewart, a core member of the Evolution, Complexity, and Cognition Research Group at the Free University of Brussels in Belgium. His work currently on the directionality of evolution, implications for humanity. He's on John Berbeke's podcast. Uh, I'd heard of him before. I heard him on that podcast. And you know me, I'm circling around John Berbeke. Uh, and he and I have a lot of shared vision. So hearing John talk on that made me, hey, we got to get him over to you talking with Greg. I made the connection. John, welcome so much. Thanks for so much for coming on. Yeah, it's great to be here, Greg. Um, yeah, I'm a member of the um, research group at the Free University of Brussels, Francis Halligan's research group. He's um, a renowned systems and cybernetician uh, person, uh, but I'm based in Melbourne, so right. so um, that's where I, I'm. I'm an external member. Okay. Uh, mainly meet in virtual space. So, uh, yeah, it's really good to meet you, Greg, because I've watched a number of your videos over the years and I've always found them stimulating and interesting. Uh, so it'll actually be good to talk. Um, Lovely. We'll have some interesting things to talk about. I think so. So will, I, so will I begin by sort of outlining where Please. my... Yeah, we ask folks, uh, you know, I am a clinician, so I like to hear people's stories and background <laughs> and what it is that uh, makes them alive. And I know that evolution and its conscious awareness of it uh, to orient us is, is going to get uh, be a central theme. But yeah, please share us a little bit of background. Wonderful. Well, yeah, basically as a teenager, um, you know, I read Teilhard de Chardin, mm -hmm. Chardin's books and uh, they inspired me. And I thought, well, let's, you know, he's got it pretty well sorted out. He, he's identified, you know, the trajectory of evolution, mm -hmm. uh, which is basically a, you know, successive integration from elementary particles successively integrating step by step right. to, to eventually you get to, you know, uh, life, cells, integration of cells into cooperatives of cells, integration of cooperatives of cooperatives of cells, and you get multicellular organisms, and then that repeats itself. And with humanity, it, you know, it repeats itself. We started off as kin groups, yep. uh, tribes and amalgamations of tribes and so on and now where you know this whole trajectory that began with um you know life about a millionth of a meter uh across in diameter now we have cooperatives integrations that uh, cover continents right mm -hmm. and it's easy to see what the next step, the next step is in any event so Tehard de Chardin he, he basically sketched that out in you know in broad terms and then he ended up because he was he made his living as a uh, as a Catholic priest, sure, <laughs> a Jesuit priest. So, so he had to sort of bind religion in there somewhere, and that's how I saw it as a teenager. I sort of thought, well, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, he, he sort of it, it, you know, if you if you cut off the the end chapters of his books, mm -hmm. the Christian part where he tries right. to basically say, well, you know, to please the elders of the church. <laughs> All this ends up in, you know, in what we believe in already, which is, right. you know, Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, and so on. So I, I didn't, I didn't buy that bit, right? Yeah, uh, but I bought the the evolutionary stuff. So that really inspired me. Another, you know, major influence was uh, strangely because it's a far, far narrower application of, you know, the evolutionary understanding is Desmond's Desmond Morris's The Naked Ape. 
Ah, mm-hmm. okay. So, and what, what I found about that was that it, that it was extremely powerful. The evolutionary perspective could explain things that you couldn't explain in any other way. Mm. Um, so in particular, you know, as a, t- <laughs> as a teenage boy, you know, I was intrigued to see that the, the evolutionary uh, perspective and evolutionary dynamics could explain why uh, females have breasts that, mm-hmm. that, that from a distance can, can look like buttocks. Mm. Right. So, so basically, he, you know, as I said, it was at the far more micro level than Teilhard de Chardin, right. uh, and certainly far, far from the uh, the Christianity that Teilhard de Chardin ended up with. But it, but it showed the power of the evolutionary worldview. And I thought, well, you know, that's evolution. You need evolution to explain everything. You can explain why we are what we are, and you know, you extend the Desmond Morris approach, and you. You can explain why we have ethics, mm-hmm. why we have morality, mm-hmm. why, our moral, why, why our morality takes the shape that it does, why the ethical principles that, that human beings uh, identify with, mm-hmm. um, even though they can't find a philosophical foundation for them, you know, as, mm-hmm. as many philosophers have demonstrated, uh, the evolutionary perspective and understanding of evolutionary dynamics can show why we have the particular, you know, ethical principles that we do and why we'll die for them mm. Um, mm. and so on. So this, this, so that, that was very powerful for me. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, as, as a, uh, a teenager, mid-teens, when I was sort of 16 or 17, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I earned my living through writing fishing articles for national mm. fishing magazines because I was a fishing fanatic. Okay. And my, my final article, when I, because it was my final article, because I found, you know, more efficient ways to make money mm-hmm. and writing fishing articles. <laughs> my final article was basically broadly, yeah, this is in a popular national fishing magazine, was an evolutionary analysis of, of fish behavior. Huh. And then using that to understand how to catch more fish. Huh. So that's, that's the power of. <laughs> That's the power of the evolutionary worldview. <laughs> you can apply it to, to fishing, and I did as you know, as a seventeen-year-old. Wow. Uh, in any event, the so I, I go off to university. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, did biology mainly because I wanted to be a marine biologist because I thought, okay. well, I was obsessed with fishing, and I thought, okay. well, as a mar- uh-huh. marine biologist, I'll be able to go fishing all the time. Ah. Uh, so <laughs> it was a means to an end. But I, but I increasingly got captured by the evolutionary worldview and intellectuality in general. So I, mm. I took off from university after two years and, and uh, earned enough money to buy my own fishing boat and I fished on the Great Barrier Reef hmm. out of Cairns and so on, 50 miles hmm. out to sea, catching mackerel and reef fish. Wow. It's one of the few uh, fisheries in the world where you can make a living catching fish the same way amateurs do, that is by line. You catch these hmm. mackerel one by one. Wow. So in any event, uh, however, the, uh, the intellectuality can, you know, continually uh, proceeded to capture me. And, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, and I changed from wanting to spend my life, at, you know, cruising the Pacific in my boat, uh, right. catching fish, to um, uh, wanting to be an intellectual. Uh-huh. I mean, this arose, this arose because when, when the wind blew, and you couldn't go out in the reef fishing, which it often did. The okay. trade went blue. Uh-huh. I'd, I'd go to the Cairns Library, 
magnificent, you know, old Queenslander building, you know, multi-stair and so on, uh, a wooden building. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I thought, well, I'll start, being a bit autistic, I thought, well, I'll start at the, in the Dewey system from triple mm. one or whatever the, you know, how it starts. <laughs> and they happen to be philosophy. Yeah, philosophy, oh. you, if you start from the beginning. Is that where it starts? I didn't know that. That's yeah, yeah, and so I read Makes Bertrand. It seems Russell. appropriate. <laughs> yeah, that's, it should be the beginning, the foundations mm. of all and everything, if, if philosophy is very good. And, and a lot mm. of it has, it's shown, <laughs> A lot of philosophy, particularly analytic philosophy, has, has, has argued that we can't create foundations for anything mm -hmm. uh, rather, instead of producing those foundations. Um, so anyway, I read, started reading the books, read Bertrand Russell, and I got more interested and interested in philosophy. And, mm -hmm. and that, so I went back to university, still went, you know, and did all the subjects on evolution I could and still didn't ever meet Teilhard de Chardin. I mean, mm -hmm. Teilhard de Chardin, uh, you know, is on the nose, well, he's ignored by, by current evolutionary theory and so on. Hmm. And then I, I finished my degree and I thought, well, I'm, you know, I thought I'd be an academic and go on and so okay. on. Mm -hmm. I surveyed the evolutionary field, or the field of evolutionary science, and, and mm -hmm. came to the conclusion that it's, um, it, it's anti-big picture thinking. Hmm. So... Evolutionary science, it's not as narrow, narrow as behaviorism, you know, in psychology, in your field. Um, but behaviorism is, you know, extraordinarily narrow. And, and I see it as one of the great crimes of the 20th century, behaviorism, in psychology. Okay. Yeah, I'd love to dialogue with you about that. I'll probably be in strong agreement uh, with right. the well, <laughs> Yeah, but the, the reason why it's one of the great crimes of the 20th century is because it it directed the attention and efforts and resource of, the, of, of hundreds of thousands of highly intelligent, highly qualified people who, who wanted to study psychology. And it directed their attention to this, this, these narrow understandings of stimulus and response. Uh, it wouldn't postulate the, you know, the existence of minds, you know, it, it wouldn't, it, it was on the nose to, it was unacceptable to postulate uh, cognition and so on, and that that cognition only came into psychology in any big way, you know, in the second half of the 20th century. So it was an enormous sure. waste of talent that could have been used far more usefully to to understand, um, you know, human psychology. And and one of the manifestations of this is that, and I was one of these students that you know the world is full of of intelligent young. Uh, people who are full of energy and excitement about doing psychology and they do psychology 101 because, <laughs> because they want to, you know, get some understanding about how their mind works, how their psychology works and how the, the psychology of their friends work and everything else. And they do psychology 101 and it's rats and stats. You know, it's, um, yep. they learn, they learn very little about mind and how mind works and, and, and so on. I'm very happy to talk about this topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, well, I, I left that far behind as I'll eventually get to <laughs> slowly mm -hmm. and so on. But um, so anyway, I, I surveyed the evolutionary field and discovered that uh, basically it had been infested by the same, you know, philosophical mm. opinions as behaviorism, which is basically logical positivism, which yep. is 
that you can only deal with those things you can measure yep. directly, mm -hmm. uh, which basically, you know, to me, that's concrete operations mm -hmm. thinking. It's not even formal operations, let alone post-formal thinking. Right. Well, so it's um, concrete operations uh, thinking. Mm. So the, the big picture evolutionary thinking of Teilhard de Chardin requires abstraction upon abstraction upon abstraction. You know, you... Right. You're dealing with things you can't see and touch. You're dealing with evolutionary history and evolutionary dynamics mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. a much larger scale, and so on. Right. So the so the only time the you know, evolutionary scientists in the second half of the 20th century um, started to deal with the, the big picture issues, and in particular, applied evolutionary theory to you know to humans. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The only time they they do that is in their final book, often a post-retirement mm -hmm. book. And it'd be the final chapter of that book. So the, they'd finally get to what interested me, what excited me, what, right. what drove me. You know, when they when they um, uh, when they got to the end, the the end, and it was yes. safe to do so, basically. So so I thought, well, you know, I'm not so. And I looked at the PhD students around me, and I, I thought, well, they they spend their life as logical positivists do, counting and measuring. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to count, count and measure, you know, animals and things. Uh -huh. I'm, uh -huh. I wanted to be an intellectual. You know, I'd made that transition. I, I wanted stimulating ideas. I wanted to be challenged intellectually and so on. So I saw there was no place for me in, mm. in, in academic evolutionary science. Okay. And I didn't want to count and measure for 50 years to earn the right to write the final chapter in my book. So I left academia, um, but I always had in my mind that, that I wanted to pursue this intuition. Hmm. That really, the, you know, a comprehensive theory of, of evolution should cover everything, because evolution is basically change. Yep. And a comprehensive evolutionary theory, you know, should cover all, all the science, scientists, uh, sorry, all the sciences. Mm -hmm. um, and in particular, all the human sciences, you know, because we're products of evolution, we're shaped by evolution and so right, on. Right. Mm -hmm. So in any event, I, I became a union official and an arbitra arbitration advocate in court, court proceedings and, huh. and did all these things. But and eventually I ended up uh, as, a, as the manager of Australians Northeastern Fisheries. So I actually got a bit, <laughs> okay. of, a bit into that. And managed, you know, some of the fisheries that I'd actually fished in earlier oh, when, cool. as a teenager, as oh, a teenage oh, professional fisherman. And then I moved into government policy advice and so on. And, and you know, policies about uh, how Australia should set up its industrial relations system mm. to govern, you know, how wages should be increased and, mm -hmm. and so on. So but all the time I, I was really interested. This was a means to an end. I was, you know... I, I had to earn an income and had, mm. I had a family and two wonderful little girls and, uh, and I had to provide for them. But my fundamental interest was in, you know, the evolutionary big picture. Right, right. So I read and I read and, you know, thought and so on. Mm -hmm. And eventually I started writing papers. So, okay. so I've written and, and got invited to join, uh, you know, the research group at the Free University of Brussels. Right, right. So I've published over a dozen papers in... Um, international peer-reviewed science journals mm -hmm. about the trajectory of evolution mm -hmm. uh, and its implications for humanity. And I've 
published a book called Evolution's Arrow. Right. The Direction of Evolution and the Future of Humanity. So, yeah, that's basically my story. Okay. Um, and, the, and, the, and now I'm retired and so I'm a full-time evolutionary activist and evolutionary okay. theorist. Um, haven't done paid work for, you know, 15 years now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm free. I'm free. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so the issue, the, I mean, the key issue is where, you know, that's the backstory. Yep. Um, the key issue is, you know, where it's led me. So, and basically, you know, I discovered that a, a properly developed evolutionary worldview answers the big existential questions that face all of us individually and collectively. Hmm. And those big existential questions are, uh, where do we come from? Okay. Mm-hmm. What are we? More importantly, where are we going to? And most importantly of all, what should we do with our lives you know, on a day-to-day basis? So mm-hmm. the evolutionary worldview that, I, that I've helped develop Mm-hmm. answers those big existential questions mm-hmm. hopefully you know that piques some interest well how, do, how the hell <laughs> do that you know, hey if, we got we got existential answers here or you know we're gonna be excited right. about that <laughs> that's right so 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 how does it do that well what what you know evolutionary evolution science is beginning to understand is that there's a trajectory to evolution so it's Evolution's going somewhere. There is this much larger evolutionary game in which we're embedded, even though very, very few human beings understand the nature of this game. Right. And it's a game that you have to play if you want to survive and thrive. It's a game humanity has to play if you want to survive and thrive. More importantly, and, and this is the point I'll, you know, I'll come back to and emphasize and justify and underline because it's the most critical point of all. Okay. When you understand the trajectory of evolution, uh, you, you see that it gets up to a certain point automatically through mm-hmm. natural selection and unconscious processes. Okay. But, but then beyond that point to proceed further, it has to happen intentionally. It has oh. to happen consciously. And the vehicle for that intentional driving of the evolutionary process forward is humanity. So oh. there's a role for humanity. In effect, this unconscious process is now internalized into human psyche and human culture. Mm. And the evolutionary process, which was natural selection, mm-hmm. which used to explore possibility space, you know, in biological terms, now explores, mm-hmm. it's now human intelligence and human, pos- human culture that explores possibility space right. for our current evolution. And it has to, if it doesn't happen intentionally, it doesn't proceed, the process fails. It has to happen intentionally and it has to happen intentionally through us. Hence, there's a role for human beings. Mm-hmm. So coming back to this trajectory, um, the, what, what you do when you identify a trajectory in evolution is you identify what succeeds. Okay. You identify what survives and thrives mm. and in so doing you also identify what is selected out of existence okay mm-hmm. so if there is a trajectory to evolution it it defines if if you're conscious and and guiding your own evolution it defines what you have to do mm-hmm. 
in order to survive and thrive, you, you examine the trajectory, you locate yourself on it, and you see what you have to do to survive and thrive into the future. Okay. Not be selected out. Uh-huh. So, so this trajectory, you know, is broad. There's two great arcs in this trajectory, two great themes. Good. I was just about to ask you about that. This core ingredients, these two elements of complexification and evolvability. Yeah, let's let's get into those. That'd be great. Yeah. So the so one is the the trend towards increasing integration and cooperation, which basically Tehard, Deschard, and identified. Um, but I'll, I'll just yeah. So so broad. So that's the success of integration. It's the stepwise process in which, you know, life when it first emerged was a, a cooperative of molecular processes, mm-hmm. an autocatalytic set of, of proteins that came to be governed by RNA uh, to form the first protocell. So, and that was, as I mentioned, a millionth of a metre across. So that's the extent of cooperation at that time. And these different cooperatives competed with one another, often destructively and so mm-hmm. on. That's the, that's the dynamic. Uh, cooperation does not emerge easily. Competition undermines cooperation and so on until you have an arrangement that emerges that, that quells the, the competition and enables cooperation to flourish. Exactly. exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that happened to, to form the first protocells from these molecular processes. Mm-hmm. And, then, and they competed destructively. Uh, until a mechanism arose that enabled them to cooperation uh, to cooperate, and once cooperation arises, it outcompetes everything else mm. hands down. So it's just like a, a, a team of cooperative human individuals will always outcompete an isolated individual. Right. Um, you know, a tribe will wipe out mm-hmm. isolated kin groups. Mm-hmm. Amalgamations of tribes will wipe out tribes and. Mm. and Eventually, nation states will wipe out tribes as we're brilliantly doing and have done you know, in the world today. So, so cooperation uh, succeeds. The, the first simple cells form communities of, of uh, simple cells, which is the eukaryote complex cell, which, which a number of its organelles right. uh, mm-hmm. uh, originated from bacteria that were engulfed in the simple cells and so on. So, so our cells, if we look down into our body, yep. uh, our cells are actually cooperatives of simpler cells that are cooperatives of molecular processes. And then those complex cells got together through a mechanism, again, that, that uh, governed the, the destructive competition, quelled it, mm-hmm. enabled cooperation to arise, and you have you know, this glorious thing that each of us are. Um, a galaxy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, of, of, of three, three to ten trillion mm-hmm. cells um, cooperating together. Uh, and none of those cells know us. They don't know who we are. They don't care about our goals. They're totally ignorant of those. They just do their cellular things. But in so pursuing their own cellular interests, because of the way they're organised, they produce right. our speech, our cognition, our yep. walking, you know, this, this amazing orchestration right. of the, these trillions of cells. So right. then you get those cooperatives of, of uh, multicellular organisms such as ourselves mm-hmm. and particularly in humans 
I mentioned groups, tribes and so on. At each step along the way, you had, you know, tribes destructively competing with one another until a mechanism arose mm. that quelled the, the destructive competition and enabled cooperation to flourish. And once, once cooperation flourished, that outcompeted the, those that weren't cooperating and so on. Gotcha. And now we're at the level of nation states. So it's like we need some superordinate governance system that would afford us cooperation in an effective way, if only. <laughs> that's right. That's, that's simply what it is. So this insight came to me when I, you know, I remember the moment in my, in my house in Canberra, Australia, uh, where, and the insight that came, which is just reflected in what you said, is that the a cell is that the, the, the DNA of the cell is the governor of the cell in the same way that to a global system, an integrated cooperative global system, which is like a cell on an enormously greater scale, it needs global governance. So, you, so the DNA is to the cell what global governance is to the globe. And that function of that governance is to make cooperation possible. And, it, and without it, you don't get cooperation, you get destructive competition. So, so we have nation states in the world today. We don't have a, a system of governance above them. They therefore just, you know, compete destructively as manifesting in, well, the great history of the United States of America. You know, one of the great, most destructive competitors that you know, the world's ever seen. Um, yeah. Yeah, look, look what you did in Vietnam and, you know, Iraq and so on. And, and Putin's now copying you in the Ukraine. <laughs> but, but America wants to monopolize that and so on. And the, uh, you know, so it doesn't want that. So you have this destructive competition and it, it, you know, we've been on the brink of nuclear war. And that's a manifest, that would be a manifestation of this destructive competition. Of course. Mm -hmm. And it can wipe out, you know, the whole... Basically, the, the whole, whole stack, the whole project of, of evolution um, on this planet can, yeah, can be and certainly wipe us out. So equally, it's, you know, it's driving environmental destruction, this destructive competition uh, involving, you know, now multinational corporations, some of them are bigger than some governments. So they're involved in this destructive competition and they're manipulating the whole system so that they can succeed in this destructive competition and make more money. Uh, you know, oil companies are doing that, even though a side effect of what they're doing is, you know, is the likely destruction of human civilization this century and so on. So this is the same dynamic that existed, you know, with yep. molecular processes, was existed with simple cells and, and complex cells and so on. And it needs the same solution, uh, and it's, and, it's, and it's obvious where it needs to go. So where, where it needs to go is the, is the superordinate system of governance right. that constrains nation states. Mm -hmm. uh, and just as within a nation state, you know, you need a system of governance that punishes people mm -hmm. who, who undermine cooperation by robbing banks, you know, by taking right. what's not theirs and so on. You yep. need that at the international level and and it's so to punish free riders and and destructive uh, competitors, right? Uh, 
and someone and to align the interests. So what what it does, what it did at every other level, you know, the system of governance yep. is, is align the interests of the component processes with the interests mm-hmm. of the whole. Right. And that alignment doesn't, and this is part of the good news for for future human evolution, this alignment doesn't require us all to become saints. Right. Mm-hmm. That saint-like Mother Teresa's, you know, that choose to cooperate despite of it being mm-hmm. in our interests in some circumstances, not to cooperate. It doesn't happen in that way. It happens through the it, it, through alignment of interests. Right. So, so at the end of the day, if you have alignment of interests, mm-hmm. you still you still all the subordinate entities feel free to pursue their own interests, which they are like the mm-hmm. cells within our body. Mm-hmm. They pursue their own interests, like the cells in our body, mm-hmm. because of the form of organisation. That results in you know in in our body in, in differentiation, yep. diversity. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no central imposed way of behaving on all our cells. Right. In fact, and this is you know this is a fascinating thing about this process of successive integration, that once you solve the cooperation problem through a system of mm-hmm. of, of effective governance, uh, then you get this explosion of diversity. It doesn't create uniformity, you know, which is the bogeyman, the bogeyman sure. of global governance, uh, which is promoted by, you know, those who oppose global governance because it's not in their current interest to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's doesn't happen through suppression. So you get this explosion of diversity. So we have, you know, cells in our body are far far more diverse than free living cells are, because mm-hmm. because division of labour. And specialization mm. is ex- that's how cooperation manifests in a way mm-hmm. that makes us far more effective. So, so global governance will cause an explosion of diversity and, mm. and so on. And to the extent that we have um, you know global cooperation already, which happens in some domains, such as to an extent in economic systems, mm-hmm. there already is this specialization, division of labor and right. and so on between countries and, and so on, mm-hmm. enabled by cooperation. So that's so this the evolutionary trajectory. Uh, once you understand the causal micro foundations mm-hmm. of this trajectory, mm-hmm. uh, then you can predict where it, where it yeah. where it needs to go okay. and identify what is needed to get it there. So that's the the power of this evolutionary worldview. Okay. It says if humanity is going to survive and thrive and, in effect, complete the project of the evolution of life on Earth, um, then this is what we have to have to do. Okay. Uh, now, I, I promise to come back to the issue of, of the fact that there's a role for us as oh. individuals and collectively okay. that's identified by this process. Mm-hmm. So, so this process I've described of, of you know, the... Uh, increasing integration of the the mm-hmm. uh, emergence of, of cooperative organisations of increasing scale. Uh, this um, this process was up until now was driven by by processes that are unconscious and unintentional, right. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the process basically involves competition uh, okay. and natural selection. And so on. So, so mm-hmm. natural selection, when cooperation is achieved, it outcompetes, outcompetes 
the competition at lower levels outcompetes, right. you know, the, the less cooperative mm-hmm. forms and it emerges and all that is driven unintentionally, you know, mm-hmm. there doesn't have to be any organism that, that sees that and applies it. However, Variation, selection, retention gives, it, it. gives rise to that system, yes. Now, that mechanism fails uh, when you get to the, the state we're at now where the competing mm-hmm. entities, uh, there's only, you know, less than 200 mm-hmm. destructively competing entities on the planet when for natural selection to operate effectively, you need populations of millions and, and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. So there are less than 200 nation states mm-hmm. in the world today, and, and many of them are so small, you can, you're not really part of the right. competition. Additionally, once you move to the, once you do get unification at the global level on a planet, you only have one entity, this global entity. And mm-hmm. if it's done successfully, it'll be a cooperative global entity. So there's no population, and this is the critical point, there's no population of global entities competing with one another um, that are driving selection, mm-hmm. driving the further evolution and development of that global entity. Right. So, the, so it's possible, you know, that accidentally we could stumble upon the emergence of a global entity. It doesn't mm-hmm. look like it at, at mm-hmm. the moment. Yeah, you know, for it to happen unconsciously, but right. it could happen. But that global entity won't evolve and develop, you know, because there's no natural selection operating on the level of the global entity. There are other global entities elsewhere, almost certainly, but they're not in destructive competition with us. Uh, the potential exists, but when you get to this level, you anticipate the future okay. rather than actually operate in it. So. So now this developmental process of the global, so the global entity, I'm starting to use the term global entity. So mm-hmm. I need to stop here and point out that this, this process I've described, uh, you know, of life and its evolution on this planet, the success of integration, is a developmental process. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's like an embryo. And mm. you know, I like, like to think of a, a chicken embryo, you know, mm-hmm. starts with, starts with two sim- simple cells. Right. And they reproduce and then structures which are like cooperative. And differentiate and cooperative systems create a multifaceted. That's right. mm-hmm. Within the embryo. And, and if, if you were a single cell in that embryo and you developed a science and an understanding of what the hell was going on around mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. If you, if your science got really good, you would have an evolutionary developmental theory, you know, of mm. what was going on, and you'd say, hey, this, this culminates in the hatching mm. of a chicken mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, that goes off to do things that are unimaginable to us, but, you know, mm. it's life. Mm-hmm. So we, we are like those intelligent cells waking up right. in the midst of this evolutionary process, and we're beginning to see that it is a developmental process, that it is headed somewhere. Mm-hmm. Where it's headed is the emergence of a global superorganism, mm-hmm. a, global, a global entity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that global entity then, that's not the end of evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not the end of the show. Okay. Uh, that's a small step along the way because that global entity will need to develop its own adaptability, its own intelligence, its own evolvability, 
its own capacity to engage in whatever interactions then occur at that higher level with other global entities that mm. emerge elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the evolutionary destiny. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the reasons why these other, other global entities don't haven't contacted us already. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they haven't contacted me either. But the <laughs> the reason why they haven't. Some people say they're here, but we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, well, they wouldn't be here in the same reason for the same reason that we don't interfere, you know, in a chicken egg in the development mm. process within a chicken egg, uh, or you know, we don't start communicating and interfering with humans in embryo form. Mm-hmm. You know, they've got to go through a developmental process. Mm. They've got to develop the you know the uh, capacities to so that you then can communicate with them you know, on this higher level. Hmm. So humanity does, you know, the, the global uh, entity, the global superorganism doesn't exist on this planet yet. Mm-hmm. We have this pandemonium, this cacophony, this, mm-hmm. you know, from a higher level, this ridiculous process in which, mm-hmm. you know, the right hand is fighting the left hand and mm-hmm. the nation states, you know, could well destroy us mm-hmm. through nuclear war, you know, mm-hmm. in the next decade even. Totally. Uh, so there's no one to talk to. There's there's no one for the you know other global entities to talk to talk to with, mm-hmm. and we and they also see because they've been through this process, you know they see the evolutionary trajectory. They see what what's needed to to advance it and so on, and they've successfully done that. Uh, so they can see, and this is the most critical point of all. They can see that we have to go through these developmental processes and overcome uh, this destructive competition if we are to become a global entity that eventually will be able to take its place amongst global entities and and Uh communicate and so on. So uh, any interference, this this idea that why why don't they help us get over these problems, Uh the reason why they don't help us is because that wouldn't be help. That would be hindrance. So the you can perceive it as as these this destructive competition which is going on between nation states in the world today is calling into existence the the structures and so on that are needed to overcome it. Okay. That that also enable you know this emergence of the cooperative mm-hmm. global entity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and any interference would prevent those structures from being called into existence and those structures global governance and so on are essential for us to become a global entity that can function effectively and develop effectively you know furtherance so so we won't if we do make this step and become a global entity we won't be you know interfering with um uh you know embryos that are developing on other planets so now I should, I should move na- now into uh, you know the psychological realm. Okay. Because eventually, you know, I, I'm getting, I'm, <laughs> I am getting there. So, which might interest you more, but mm. but you're interested in everything anyway. So. Well, yeah, yeah, no, I, I think <laughs> um, I certainly everything that you say so far, you you to me, I would say, or let me check in with you um, in terms of 
um, what you're saying about other global entities. We can imagine the other global entities out there um, in potential relation. We can imagine maybe we're nobody knows about us. I mean, I guess it depends on how, like how, when you say the other global entities are essentially waiting for us to wake up or, or waiting or to form our global entity that we would then plug into, um, that sounds plausible to me, but also speculative, quite speculative. Well, can you tell me a little bit about what kind of ontology you're claiming in relationship to that um, set of assertions? Right. Well, well, first of all, the, the interesting thing about you know life on this planet is that uh, if you understand how life first emerged, you know these mm-hmm. first cooperating molecular processes, first protocells, then you see that there's, nothing, there's no magic required, there's no miracle required, the more we understand about the origins of life and really, you know, and, uh, you know, biology is just starting to grapple with that. There aren't particularly very good theories around, but, but increasingly it's clear that there are no, there's no great barrier. So it'll, it'll happen and there are, you know, there are billions of planets like okay. out mm-hmm. in the sure. universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's no barrier to it happening. More importantly, you know, the whole process I've just described has no particular barriers in it. You know, it's driven, mm-hmm. said unconsciously by natural selection, mm-hmm. this excessive integration and so on. It, it's, it's, uh, you know, there, it's this, this process of life begins to explore this possibility space and there are the attractors in possibility space are cooperatives and cooperatives of cooperatives and so on. So that process is driven. It's causally driven. You can identify the causal micro foundations and they're universal. There are, again, no mm-hmm. barriers. So once you get, you know, simple life on a, pl- on a planet, mm-hmm. broadly like ours and probably ones that are totally different to ours as well, you will get this process that will lead eventually to where we are uh, and if the sentient organisms that are, you know, on the brink of destro- destroying the planet develop a theory of evolution and understand, you know, the trajectory and where they need to go and start, uh, you know, instituting intentional evolution, they'll build the structures needed to underpin this global entity. So that's why, so this is still speculation, but then, you know, all great theories are speculative. Sure, no, I, I, and, yeah. And they make predictions and those predictions need to be tested. And, and the micro foundations mm-hmm. of this theory are highly testable. Sure. No, they lead to all sorts of implications. Like, so it predicts, for example, that when you know, cooperative transitions arise, they'll have a certain structure. Mm-hmm. You know, there'll be a two-tiered structure of governance mm-hmm. and a metabolism, broadly speaking. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and so you can, you can that's, a, that's falsifiable predictions made sure. by the theory, and you can test them and, and they pass the test. So that's, that's why, you know, I say, like, uh, you know, an example you can give, uh, again, United States of America, um, you know, the American Indians, uh, the American Indians didn't know that they were the only, they didn't know that there are other people, other cultures. They didn't know Britain existed, Europe existed, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and that they were destructive, very good at destructive competition and developed weapons and so on. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, they lived their tribal life and, and harmony with their environment and, and, you know, broadly speaking, a good time was had by all. 
But then out of the blue comes these, you know, the aliens from elsewhere mm -hmm. on the planet, and they didn't know there wasn't elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Belatedly, they, you know, to try and repel the, the rapacious invaders, you know, they started to form cooperatives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They started to form federations of tribes and so on. Mm -hmm. Sure. And they had some victories, you know, doing that. But basically it was too late. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the same thing happened in, you know, in South Africa with the, you know, the, the rise of South Africa and so on. Mm -hmm. The same dynamic applied where, where there's a realisation that to deal with existential threats, threats, you need to form larger scale cooperatives. Um, but the, so basically I'm, I'm saying that the part of the reason why we need to develop, you know, a global entity and then develop that global entity and so on <clears throat> is because we don't want to be like the American Indians right. who were blind to the possibility, which was an, in fact an actuality, that there was life elsewhere on this planet and it could threaten them and they needed to develop the capacity to interact with it effectively and deal with it effectively and so on. Um, so, uh, so I promised to, yeah, so, yeah, that was my response to your um, uh, the issue you raised about, you know, is this just pure wild speculation or is there, you know, a stronger basis to it? And it's a much stronger basis to it than science fiction because of these causal micro foundations. And I might mention, coming back to Tehard de Chardin, the reason, a key reason why his ideas never got traction in science mm -hmm. uh, is because he never established causal micro foundations for this integration process right. that he described. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's the same critique uh, justifiably levelled at, uh, at at uh, you know Karl Marx and his theories of society, okay. um, and basically Marx and Engels saw themselves as as extending the Darwinian uh, understanding to humanity. And Engels at Marx's funeral, you know, said that he you know here he, we're burying a man who you know is the Darwin of, of mm. the human sciences and so on, but. So he developed, the, he developed this brilliant analysis of capitalism and its ills and so on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but then his predictions, and, and that's the fundamental what transmutes, um, you know, speculative theories into science and differentiates mm -hmm. between speculation and science. His, his, he, his predictions weren't based on causal microfoundations and understanding of the causal microfoundations. Mm -hmm. So they weren't. He, he was extrapolating patterns, mm -hmm. not extrapolating causation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, disastrous. So Tehard de Chardin did the same thing. Mm -hmm. He didn't establish the causal microfoundations. Um, this, you know, understanding, big picture understanding of evolution that I'm identifying, uh, a key part of the effort is to identify the causal right. microfoundations, which it does. It basically, you know, identifies why cooperation succeeds, mm -hmm. uh, why it fails up to a certain point until you get the emergence of structures that enable, they're enabling constraints that enable mm -hmm. cooperation and so on. And then it enables you then to extrapolate, not the pattern, mm -hmm. but, the, but the causal relations. And you see, mm -hmm. yes, they do exist on the level of the planet, 
if we ignore them, you know, human civilization could well be destroyed this century. Mm-hmm. Um, and here's how, and here's what we have to do. Here's the, the causality that we have to put in place. So, in any event, coming, coming back to yeah, you know, the psychological side of things, mm-hmm. the other great I mentioned there are two great um, trajectories in evolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other is the trajectory of increasing evol- evolvability. Right. So I'll just try and explain what evolvability is because again it's you know it's an abstract concept, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's a very powerful one once it's understood because it unifies all these di- apparently different processes mm-hmm. that emerge in in, in evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, it unifies them under a common framework uh, and understanding. So. So by evolvability, I mean simply this, that imagine, you know, any organism at any level on the, in this hierarchy of steps, um, it needs to adapt to survive. Yep. And, and it actually needs also to innovate to survive mm-hmm. because innovation, if there's innovation and change going on around it, mm-hmm. it needs to be able to, to innovate. So how, how does it do that? You know, what's... Mm-hmm. So we're talking basically about you know what human beings call intelligence. Uh-huh. So evolvability is you know is broadly related to intelligence. Okay. Uh-huh. So so the another way of conceptualizing it is is that there's an organism has a possibility space, uh, which are the changes that can be made to the organism. You know, changing it bit by bit defines yep. a possibility space that it can move into. Okay. And little elements in that possibility space might constitute creative adaptation, you know, new adaptation, successful adaptation. So the task for the organism to personify it a bit is to discover, Mm -hmm. is to explore possibility space and discover the adaptive bits, which which can can also be described as attractors, you know, attractors in possibility space. Mm -hmm. So how the hell does it discover them? And so... Mm -hmm. The most basic way is natural selection. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can take a single-celled or- organism that changes its genes, you know, its yep. genes change one by one mutation. Uh, randomly, it has no idea, understanding of possibility space and what might be good or bad. It blindly um, mm-hmm. changes bits and the feedback loop of natural selection says, oh, this is good or this is crap, you know, yep. and whatever is good survives and thrives, reproduces, and then changes and so on. So that's, that's you know, the most basic way of exploring possibility space. It's totally incompetent way of, ex- of exploring it. It's like, you know, the way Donald Trump, you know, tried to govern America. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I had to say that, but anyway, a cheap shot, a cheap shot. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Not a huge um, Trump supporter over here. So yeah, I <laughs> that's, right, that's right. That's right. So the so how could that mechanism get better? And that's the question of, you know, that's the question you ask if you want to mm-hmm. understand um, how evolvability uh, evolve itself evolves mm-hmm. and how the the you know the structure of the possibility space of evolvability itself. You know, what are good moves? in terms of improving evolvability. Extraordinarily, you know, one of the, the, one of the great step forwards in evolvability was sexual reproduction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sexual reproduction is a cognitive 
<laughs> a cognitive mechanism. It's a mechanism of improving availability. It's a mechanism for enhancing the capacity of organisms to explore possibility space. Mm -hmm. And it does it through, I won't get into the details, but it does it through recombination of, of genes sure. rather than just randomly mm -hmm. uh, changing elements of those genes. And recombinations are more likely to be successful. They're more likely, therefore, to discover, you know, uh, an, advance, an advantage in possibility space. So the, um, but, but those two mechanisms involve, they only happen at the population level, at the competition between organisms, and they occur across the generation. So they're a very slow process. Mm -hmm. They didn't enable adaptability during the life of the organism. Mm -hmm. So the, that's where the, the great new wave in evolvability arose, was through mm -hmm. the, the ability of organisms to adapt and explore possibility space during their lives. Mm -hmm. and, and the most, you know, the most known one with humans that we can easily understand um, was Skinnerian, you know, operant learning, which is where you try out different behaviours Sure. You don't have full knowledge about whether they'll work or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so mm -hmm. it's like it's as dumb as natural selection. Mm -hmm. uh, you try out these different behaviours until one, you know, you hit on something that works, mm -hmm. um, and then and and that in effect selects that behaviour that worked. Yep. Reproduce causes it to be reproduced through time. Mm -hmm. So you, you've discovered an adaptation. Mm -hmm. So you're searching possibility space through, you know, trial and error. Yep. behavioural change mm -hmm. and Skinner you know this wasn't lost on him that you know that that this this you know was similar to evolutionary processes totally. he called it selection by consequences exactly mm -hmm. um so the that was a major advance but the fundamental limitation of that evolvability was that it died with the organism Mm -hmm. largely speaking. So, so what you've learned by operant conditioning during your life, um, they died with you unless, yep. unless there was in social animals, there would have been a little bit of imitation. A little bit of vicarious learning. Yep. But that's right. Not a huge amount, but some depending. <laughs> that's right. So the, so the, so the great leap forward uh, was the transmissibility of this, Mm -hmm. the results of operant learning mm -hmm. uh, and the transmissibility of that, you know, led to culture of which imitation is a part and, and so on. Mm -hmm. So that massively improved, massively accelerated the, you know, the, the rate of exploration of totally. possibility space availability. Yep. Um, so it, it, it enabled, for example, human beings, you know, in a few hundred years to, to work out how to fly mm -hmm. through the air while birds and so on took millions upon millions upon millions, you know, sure. that, that exploration of possibility space by, you know, genetic trial and error was um, uh, mm -hmm. even powered by sexual reproduction was far, far slower than anything we do. Um, so the, that's the emergence of culture. The uh, Another critical development, and this this you know will eventually loop back into to everything I've been saying. Another critical development was the ability to to form mental models. Mm -hmm. 
So the and here we're getting into human intelligence. So this was a major leap forward in evolvability. Um, the formation of, of mental models meant that you could get a look ahead function. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So look ahead as in the sense that instead of being reacting to things as they exist now and trying things mm -hmm. out as they exist now, uh, you could actually form a mental model of how things were going to unfold. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and you use that mental model, you know, in you use the mental model in your head to do what operant conditioning does in real life. So operant conditioning tries out behaviours in the real world mm -hmm. and the real world selects those that work. The mental model, uh, can tr you can try out possible behaviours mentally yep. and the mental model will enable, will tell you, give you feedback on what works and what doesn't. Oh. So you can, you can plan ahead mm -hmm. to an extent. Mm -hmm. And... It's, and it's critically important to see the, 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 the developmental trajectory, the, the levels of the development of this mental modelling capacity. Mm -hmm. um, so first of all, the mental modelling, uh, it began, you know, as all these things do, at the most simplest, and then it recursively self-improved. It, it mm -hmm. built upon itself. So the first was concrete, concrete mental models. So all you could mentally model was the concrete objects in your environment, mm -hmm. you didn't have the capacity to go abstract. Mm -hmm. So, and you can be, and many human beings are still at that level. Uh, Trump hasn't quite got there yet, but, you know, but, but, but many human beings are still at the concrete operations level and you can be very, very smart at the concrete operations level. You can be an architect or a, mm -hmm. a, a, of a sorts. Mm -hmm. um, and the classic example is, um, that I give is uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, who famously said, there is no such thing as society. Right. Just, mm -hmm. There are just individuals and Collections of individuals or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she was reporting on her mental models mm -hmm. because she, we can only understand the world through our mental models mm -hmm. uh, beyond, you know, actually mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, the images we have, mm -hmm. the senses. Um, and if you if you if you if in, and if you wander around the world, you will never see a society. So the concrete reality you perceive, you know, you you I can wander around the streets of Melbourne and I can see, uh, you know, people buying and selling stuff and interacting mm -hmm. and so on. But to see an economic system, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, to see a society and and how it's organised requires going beyond the concrete. Uh -huh. You have to build these mental structures um, that go beyond the concrete. And this is, of course, the problem with behaviorism as well. It's behaviorism is this concrete uh -huh. you know, modeling of the world. You only can deal with things that you can touch and feel and, uh -huh. and so on. So, so the next step beyond concrete operations, uh, beyond concrete modeling, um, is the ability to, to uh, form abstract models. Abstract models are you know, of absolute critical importance uh, because they, they powered the European Enlightenment. Mm. So the European Enlightenment was the, the first spread throughout humanity more generally mm -hmm. of a capacity for abstract modeling. Mm. 
So abstract modelling enables you to go beyond the concrete. It enables you to understand that, to generalise the concrete. So moving from concrete specifics to general principles, principles of logic, then applying those principles of logic is going abstract and mm -hmm. so on. Mm -hmm. And without it, you can't do science. Uh, so it underpinned modernism. So arguably, the, the, as I said, the European Enlightenment its emergence was the emergence and spread of what I, I call analytical rational thinking. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and that analytical rational thinking, however, it, you know, was extraordinarily successful in driving science and so on. But it was extremely, but it's also limited. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and you have to understand the limitations to see what comes next okay. mm -hmm. and so on. So you talk about the first enlightenment. Mm -hmm. You talk about the second enlightenment. Mm -hmm. You talk about the enlightenment gap. Yep. Um, so we're starting to get a convergence here, but but there are some differences that derive from it, perhaps. But that'll come out in the mm -hmm. discussion. But it's mm -hmm. so the because I I would I didn't develop your term the enlightenment gap, but you know it's a good term. It it speaks to me. Um, it speaks to the you know the the my mental models of mm -hmm. uh, the evolution of human evolvability. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so analytical rational thinking can go abstract, but uh, basically it can it can it's the mental models that it, it forms and that it uses to try and understand the world. Yep. Are analyzable models, models mm -hmm. that can be thought through, models yep. that de therefore you know, are built on linear causality, mm -hmm. linear logic, and so on. Mm -hmm. So, and it's fundamentally reductionist. So, mm. so these mental models are mechanistic models. They, hence, they can only understand those parts of reality. They can only adequately model those parts of reality that are also mechanistic or can be approximated by mechanistic models. Mm -hmm. uh, and Alfred North Whitehead pointed out that. Only about 10% of what's really important to human beings can be modelled by mm. analytical mm. rational thinking. Okay. Mm. But, but nearly everything that matters to us mm. can't be. Mm -hmm. And what matters to us, whether we understand it or not, whether we're like Maggie Thatcher and can't mm. see it because she hasn't got the mental models to see, mm. you know, mm. to see it. Uh, what's critically important to us is culture. So society, mm -hmm. how you organise societies, mm -hmm. how you create a good society, mm -hmm. um, and also the evolutionary understanding. Mm -hmm. A big picture evolutionary understanding can't be arrived at through analytical rational thinking. Hence mm -hmm. why, you know, as a, as a you know, 20-year-old in, in Brisbane in Queensland, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, excelling in my Bachelor of Science degree in evolution, I looked around and said, I don't want to be here. Right. Yeah, I want I want to choose life, mm -hmm. intellectual stimulation, ideas, mm -hmm. relevance, and none of that, you know, existed mm -hmm. in evolutionary science at the time. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the limitations of analytical rational cognition. So it underpins the enlightenment gap. Mm -hmm. So so I would interpret your um, your characterization of the enlightenment gap, where you basically say you know, the, 
the first Enlightenment didn't deal effectively with mm-hmm. uh, with culture mm-hmm. uh, and understanding uh, culture, um, and didn't deal effectively with mind. Right. I would say that's a consequence of you know the limitations of the cognition mm-hmm. that emerged and underpinned the first Enlightenment. Okay, we're in agreement. Mm-hmm. So then I say, well, what's what's next mm-hmm. so so what can overcome the limitations you know mm-hmm. that what 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 form of cognition what's the next great step mm-hmm. forward in the evolvability of human beings on this planet mm-hmm. so that's that's where the, this evolutionary perspective mm-hmm. to me it's really interesting it's yep. it's because it's it's a look ahead function it tells yep. you it tells you what's going to happen next totally and this is where it all, you know, becomes self-referential too. So, yep. so the the so the second enlightenment uh, and the cognition that underpins it is cognition that enables cognizing of mm-hmm. complex phenomenon, basically. Yep. Mm-hmm. So the uh, so science so. Mm-hmm. That's the humanities domain versus, you know, the science domain. Yep. It's right brain, left brain, so on. Mm-hmm. So the, the, you know, science, evolutionary science wasn't alone in leaving alone, you know, mm-hmm. human, uh, you know, human right. evolution and the nature of society and so on. It left it to the humanities. And the role of science uh, has largely has been to inhibit mm-hmm. any attempts to develop Mm-hmm. Yeah, this complex cognition that can understand complex phenomena. Right. And it inhibits it by basically whenever an attempt is made. So with mm-hmm. it, and attempts have been made within science. So the greatest mm-hmm. minds of the 20th century all eventually gravitate to this mm-hmm. understanding of complexity because it's mm-hmm. what really matters to human beings. All right. Mm-hmm. And the the it gravitates to that, but the role of mainstream science, the negative role of mainstream science, is that whenever attempts made, it says, "Oh, well, that that doesn't meet the you know the requirements of science. That's right. um, you know, you this is all hand waving and mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, the it doesn't. It's not rigorous." You can't mathematize it's not it. Precise. It's a where's the experiments, etc. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, so that's so the role of science has been a very negative one. When and and extraordinarily to me, rather than that be the reaction of science, the reaction of mm-hmm. science should have been uh, science has uh, is has and is failing as a method for understanding complex phenomena including things that matter most to human beings, including our psychological evolution and how we organise our societies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, science should have, and that should have then given rise to, you know, the move to say, well, what new kind of science? Science 2.0. Yep. Um, second enlightenment science mm-hmm. can arise that can do justice to those areas because right. we, first enlightenment science has failed miserably. It's a, right. In, instead of arrogantly saying, well, any attempts to do it have failed, they, it should be saying, well, our attempts, we, you know, our cognition isn't effective. So, so what, what form of cognition is, needs to emerge? So, mm-hmm. 
this has been driven, you know, fueled by the evolutionary worldview. This has been a preoccupation of mine mm. for some time. And in 2011, I co-organised um, the first planning meeting mm-hmm. for the second Enlightenment. Right. And we met on a, a yacht in Sausalito, mm. which is a great place to have a... Mm. Yeah. That'd, be, that'd be a good place for, for that reflection. <laughs> That's right in San Francisco Bay, and basically, you know, who do you invite to a meeting like that? Well, there's, mm-hmm. there's even if I did it today, there's still hardly anyone in the world that, that is actually thinking of uh, mm-hmm. how do you intentionally mm-hmm. uh, identify and scaffold the yep. new form of cognition needed to underpin the second enlightenment. Amen. And that, for an intentional evolutionary... <clears throat> Mm-hmm. Yeah, for someone who's, for an evolutionary activist, for someone who wants to do what's essential, and that is intentionally mm-hmm. move the evolutionary process forward on Earth, because yep. it can only happen intentionally now. Mm-hmm. And that's a key issue. That's like, you know, that's... That's, you, that's what, a holy grail dynamic here. It is. <laughs> you, you want to move the social evolution forward, yep. you know, the global system and so on, global yep. ending. But to do that, you need, you know, the... You need the higher cognition. You need the higher evolvability. You can't do that unless you can cognize complexity yep. and have mental models that enable you to play around with uh, complex models of mm-hmm. social systems, for example, in your head, yep. intervene and test out you know, possibilities in those social systems all mentally, and a group of you then you know, doing it. And, yep. and so... So we need the second enlightenment. So I organised this meeting uh, and it was partly stimulated by the thought that perhaps, maybe, maybe the first enlightenment, uh, there was some intentional work behind the scenes, you know, in making the first enlightenment happen. And I'm still not sure, you know, Freemasons, um, you know, they're they're a shell of, the current Freemasonry is a shell of what, you know, it was. But it basically was a secret society mm-hmm. to promote the rise of rationality and so on. Mm-hmm. And the you need a secret society because otherwise you'll be you know, you'll be killed. And yep. I, I jokingly say that that I will know that my efforts haven't been completely futile when they come and get me when they <laughs> so, <laughs> when they lock you away. <laughs> that's right. But at the moment, you know, no one's coming to get me. I'm yeah. a fake. I'm yeah. a fake. So yeah. <laughs> I'm safe. <laughs> right. Completely safe. So the first the first planning meeting for the second enlightenment, you know, was its its significance was that there was such a meeting mm-hmm. where a group of people got together and said, how can we identify the cognition required? How can we spread it? And the so the, the people who came along were the integral mm-hmm. people. So there was Sean Esborn Hagens, uh, mm-hmm. Terry Patton. I just talked to Sean a week ago or two weeks ago. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, he was there. He might well even not even remember it, but mm. but I ambitiously say it'll you know to anyone who was there, it will end up being in retrospect one of the most significant events that they perhaps the most significant event that they participated in their life. Not because it you know there has been no second enlightenment since mm-hmm. two thousand eleven. It mm-hmm. didn't. It didn't produce. You know, the second, it hasn't yet produced the second enlightenment. There are seeds growing, 
but, but you know, it's yeah. great. And, and it was, it's a symbol. It's a symbol mm -hmm. in the sense that there was an intentional step mm -hmm. to do it. And implicit in it is the, is the idea that you, you, you can identify the higher level of cognition and mm -hmm. you can scaffold it. You can bring it into existence and so on. So there will be a second planning meeting uh, eventually and so on. Okay. So, so the, uh, but as I said, there's very few people in the world working on this who, so working on the building of an escalator. So, mm -hmm. you know, I can call it an escalator. An escalator is a set of practices and processes and trainings mm -hmm. that will move someone from analytical rational cognition or postmodern anti-cognition, you know, the, the, the synthesis of the two. Metamodern, yeah, they call it metamodern. Yeah, it's what metamodern ought to be, but isn't. Yeah. So metamodern, metamodernism uh, has a number of failings. Um, you know, it's more postmodern than than uh, metamodern, mm. uh, in my view. Mm -hmm. um, it's basically, you know, the main theory has been developed by two sociologists, mm -hmm. two humanities people. Uh, the not, you know, it hasn't been influenced by science, and that's partly because science is analytical, rational, and, and doesn't know how to deal with this, this sort of stuff. But metamodernism, um, you know, doesn't have an evolutionary lens. It doesn't locate things in an evolu evolutionary framework. And in, importantly, it doesn't look at governance. Mm. Uh, and it doesn't look at global governance, which is, you know, I mean, we're, for any, you know, way of dealing with the world and any approach to building a better world to be effective, it has to ensure the world continues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It has to ensure that this big show continues. And that means dealing with, you know, the destructive competition, which will is fueling the, the nuclear threat and environmental destruction. Mm -hmm. So that needs governance and, you know, metamodernism hasn't yet uh, got into that. It also hasn't got an escalator. So metamodernism, so the second book of, of, Hansi Freinacht uh -huh. put off considering global governance to future writing, mm -hmm. uh, which, and it hasn't got round to it yet. Secondly, it basically, the Hansi says in a number of places that it's, that he's skeptical about whether you can have an escalator. Mm. Um, mainly because metamodernism was. Uh, is significantly built on the ideas of Michael Laporte Commons, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the adult developmentalist. So their developmental model of human cognition is, is derived from Commons. Mm -hmm. uh, Commons is like the Hansi boys are, are fanboys of, of mm -hmm. um, Commons. One of them stayed with him and so on. Commons, extraordinarily, is a behaviorist. Extraordinarily, he proudly says in many of these, many, many of these um, papers uh, that, uh, that his ideas don't involve any mentalism. Mm -hmm. That's how thoroughly he is. So it's all the behaviorist, you know, actions in the world, coordinating things in the world. He doesn't postulate a mind or mental processes doing these sort of things and hence can't possibly, or, you know, it's almost impossible to come from such a behaviourist perspective and develop an escalator mm. because the escalator has to install new software. Mm -hmm. It has to 
you know, uh, call into existence new mental processes. It has to mould those mental processes and so on. Let me, let me, uh, can I pause you there for just a sec? Because uh, I'm yep. just checking time. Uh, I'm thinking we got about 15 or 20 minutes or so uh, right. in relation. Uh, there are some possible areas of, uh, there's obviously a huge amount of overlap in our thinking. Uh, you mentioned maybe there's some areas of disagreement that we might want to explore in relation. Uh, I want to make sure we have the opportunity to do that, if that's something you do want to dive into. Uh, some of the ideas that perhaps I've, I've shared in relation that opened up some questions in your mind in relation to the, how our views may, a lot of correspondence may diverge in certain ways. I'm open to um, diving into some of that, but I do want to also just say there's a brilliant summary here that, you know, in relationship to the complexification, the hierarchical ordering of cooperation that systematizes the underlying evolvability, the overarching recognition of the underlying microcausal structure and how to generalize that. Um, I think you've done a lot of really brilliant work in relationship to that, and it's very exciting. Um, yeah, the, the only... Yeah, I don't want to... Uh, what, the way I thought would be best to proceed is for me to go through my staff and mm -hmm. to you. Yep. to interrupt me at any time, and we've got to that stage where you can interrupt me at any time and point out any disagreements or any questions you have about it or any any areas where you see that are under-justified and so on. The, 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 the only you know, overall reaction I had to your schema, your unified theory of knowledge and so on, and I've read, you know, as I said, I've watched videos, I've read into it and so on, is, is this... this broadly what I'd say about Teilhard de Chardin, because this is a grand scheme, stimulating and, and so on, and what I'd say about Popper's criticism, Karl Popper's criticism of uh, psychological grand schemes, uh, starting with Adler, uh, also Freud, and his differentiation between science and non-science. So... Um, so I don't know, I asked the question, you know, I, have you looked into the Popperian approach? Sure, of course. Mm -hmm. So the, fundamentally it's about, uh, so he wrote a book called The Poverty of Historicism. Mm -hmm. And in an article I did for, you know, the big history journal mm -hmm. on all this, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the big poverty of big historicism. Mm -hmm. but these are all interrelated concepts. So the, the poverty of historicism is that, and this is an extraordinary thing that, that Popper pointed to that very few scientists, I think, really understand. Because scientists use Popperian methods and so on, but they're sure, not aware sure. of them or, mm -hmm. you know, they can't evaluate them and they don't know what their limits are or anything else. Mm -hmm. they're, you know, they're focused on the, the science, uh, you know, and the, the process. But, but what, he, what he pointed out was that, that there are an infinite number of possible theories to explain that can fully explain all known facts. Mm -hmm. Now that's extraordinary. So it's the and and so you can't differentiate between those theories purely based on whether or not they can explain everything that is known, uh, because there are an infinite number of theories that that can do that. Uh, now that that men so that's where he came up with the idea that. Mm -hmm. The only way you can differentiate between them is through their capacity to make surprising, bold, uh, new predictions mm -hmm. uh, that you can then test. Mm -hmm. 
So it's their falsifiability that differentiates sure. between them. So hence history, hence the failure of history and the failure so far of there being a science of history. So, you know, historic and, and equally big history has, you know, inherits a similar problem because big history is just little history, but a lot bigger. Um, <laughs> so history in general, I, I, this struck me when I was a 14-year-old suffering, you know, history. You have to, it was compulsory to do history mm -hmm. up until year 10 at school. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, seeing what I have to learn. I have to learn the 10 reasons why the First World War occurred. Uh -huh. And I've got to memorize those so I can reproduce them in an exam. And, and, I, you know, and I'm thinking, because the, the easiest way to remember things is to build a, a structure, you know, that right. unites them, it reduces the information content. And, the, so I'm, I'm, and I'm thinking, why those 10 reasons, you know? Why those 10 reasons and not other possible reasons? That, you know, these are just plucked out of the air. They don't, they're not sure. causally sufficient. They're not necessary. I didn't know the terms necessary and sufficient at the time, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but it was just bunk. And the, the whole of history is basically that, that you can make up an infinite number of stories to explain any set of historical events. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, where it manifests is in popular accounts of, of market dynamics in, you know, written by economists. So mm -hmm. you pick up, you pick up a you know a um, uh, a newspaper that analyzes markets, and there'll be lots of explanations about why the market moved the way it did yesterday. Of course, mm -hmm. uh, and I'd, and Popper would say there's an infinite number of you know mm -hmm. possible stories, and that story, stories including by the way the way you get to an infinite number is you can have you can have invisible entities and supernatural entities involved, and with all sorts of characteristics and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, humanity's been fantastic at developing uh, theories that involve supernatural entities. Sure. So, so what you won't find in that in the paper, in any paper that you know is analyzing past economic events and explaining all of them brilliantly, you won't find explanations of what's going to happen tomorrow and the day after. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just rubbish. It doesn't, you know, who can predict the market? So that's the difference between, you know, uh, historical sciences historical understanding versus so so what what so when i when i engage with so i love big picture approaches like yourself well okay. like i'm addicted that's where i started mm -hmm. um but to me their 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 main use is to expand my mental models mm -hmm. and serve as a challenge to develop causal micro foundations and mm -hmm. and so on integrated into scientific knowledge mm -hmm. and in doing so you know i learn a hell of a lot my models develop and i develop mm -hmm. more importantly i develop the meta capacity it develops my meta capacity to form complex models okay mm -hmm. um, and so on so and and i so i've hung around the theosophical society a lot so if you want to come up with unified theories of of knowledge and so on, then Theosophical Society, you know, everyone has one in their back pocket, some grand schema, and they can explain everything, uh, you know, and they're consistent with, with current knowledge. But, but the fundamental issue is this, what are their predictions? So what are the novel predictions they come, they come up with 
that we can test in the real world? Are they falsifiable? So, so in my defence of my grand theorising, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, I'd say, well, it's highly testable, highly falsifiable, uh, not only because there are micro, causal micro-foundations which independently can be tested in their own domains, but because the whole shebang, you know, the whole evolutionary story can be tested because it purports to explain and account for what's going on in the world today. Mm -hmm. So evolution is not, you know, a million years hence, not 10 million year, year hence. We're, we're evolution okay. as it manifests in the now. Mm -hmm. um, and when I, when I see us, I see this long history before it that's produced us and shaped us, and I see this long exploration of possibility space in the future okay. uh, in front of us, and I see what will work and what won't work, what will lead to our destruction. Mm -hmm. okay. so the, and so the predictions I make about, you know, so it's a prediction here and now, you know, it makes okay. this entry mm -hmm. about we've got to move to a global system underpinned by global governance, the hatching, the hatching of this embryo, mm -hmm. the culmination of this developmental process, the emergence of a global superorganism. And in psychology, in the in the in the evolvability domain, mm -hmm. uh, well, there's collective evolvability and so on. But just focusing on evolvability of human beings, as opposed to evolvability of our societies, and eventually the evolvability of the global superorganism. Mm -hmm. uh, the it makes specific predictions about you know the the evolvability of individual human mm -hmm. psychology and predicts what for us to survive and thrive, the next great transitions in psychological evolution need to be in human beings and tells us how to go about achieving those, uh, and the, you know, which is manifest okay. as second enlightenment and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so that was, that was that, so that's just my overall reaction. So I was looking, so what I'm, look, what I'm looking for when I'm, I'm looking at your ideas is what are the to what extent is it falsifiable, and most importantly of all, what does it predict about predict about the future? Okay. I mean that, that's a that's a that's a particular epistemology, and certainly we can dialogue about the ways in which uh, I would argue that it affords a fine grained descriptive causal explanatory network um, at whatever level you want to engage in. So right now, if you want to engage in this conversation. We can talk about ourselves as investing primates, creating influence matrix dynamics and engage in justificatory narrative processes that are navigating certain kinds of variation selection retention dynamics across a stack. And then we can specify what those are with great degree of, well, first, you right. want to specify them in relationship to clarity of the terminology. Right. So what, what you've done is what is possible with all these schemas grand schemas, is you've translated from one to another. So the, you can say, well, you know, when I use certain terminology and point to certain processes, you're, they are included in your model, but there's a different language behind them and, and so on. So that's possible with this infinite number of, you know, possible grand schemas. As Popper says, the rubber hits the road when we... Look at I, I, I think that Popper look. misconstrues aspects of that in particular ways. I mean, it's a particular epistemological aspectualizing of what we learned in science in relationship to prediction models. And it's very applicable in certain regards. And I'm not saying it's not um, 
you know, it, it isn't particularly useful. To use that simply as the metric, I think it's a throwaway line to say that well, all these infinite models can do all of this various things. Actually, I say, no, find me a model that does a halfway decent job of solving the problem yeah. of psychology. That's the question, halfway decent. Yeah, so now halfway you're decent. Yeah, that's now you're starting to you, you point to what criteria mm-hmm. you know, stand for halfway decent. Yep. So Popper's criteria, and by the way, he he evolved into an evolutionary epistemologist. Yeah, and he gave rise to a three-world view, which is eh, pretty weak in relationship to his ontology, metaphysics, and epistemology, certainly relative to Utah, which kicks the shit out of that. Um, but anyway, it affords a particular kind of big picture model that he was after as he tried to make sense at a coherentist level of the, of the world that he was in, and he gave rise to that particular structure, which was okay, but grossly still enlightenment gapped fucked at the level of its capacity to really make sense out of the interrelationship right. between the physical world, the mental world, and the cultural world in the proper evolutionary stack situated in an ev- information energy structure that actually has coherence. He couldn't do that. Utah yeah, does no, that. I'm, I'm not holding... <laughs> I'm not holding Popper up as, you know, as, you know, correct on everything. It's not about authority. It's about no, idea. no. I, I'm totally. I, I'm simply saying that there's a particular lens, just a, and I would argue similar to the sort of mechanism lens. There are particular lenses that we want to bring to bear: predictability, falsifiability criteria. Clearly, there's a very important epistemological criteria that Popper points to, okay, and utilizes very effectively to dismantle certain kinds of structures. I'm just saying it's not the only cudgel that I would want to bring to bear in judging a criteria for a particular theory. Well, if I broaden Popper out to evolutionary epistemology, which, as I said, he, he, was, he didn't see himself as an evolutionary epistemologist you know, in the beginning, but I'd say he, he evolved into it, hence his famous statement that, you know, an important transition in humans was the the uh, emergence of the capacity for our ideas to die in our stead, which is mm-hmm. my, you know, I, I talk about that in terms of modelling and so on. Right. But he, he was still hung up on the truth. Um, you know, he used truth criteria. He talked about the similitude and so on, which has mm-hmm. come from analytic philosophy. And, and, as, and to me, you know, is even pre-First Enlightenment, so it really hampers science, but... If, if you look at how evolutionary epistemology then moved on from that, broadly speaking, evolutionary epistemology says, and it, it, its perspective is basically that um, is the evolvability story I've outlined, that is that organisms in the world um, uh, to survive, you know, mm-hmm. processes that enable them to adapt, survive, and processes that, are, that enhance their uh, adaptability you know, survive, so evolvability evolves and so on. So but fundamental to that is that there is no, that organisms can never discover the truth, that the truth doesn't mean anything in terms of this evolutionary perspective. What's critically important is usefulness. Um, You know, does it make you more adaptable or not? Uh, Your mental model might be totally, you know, wrong in the sense that, it, well, all our mental models do not reflect reality in the sense that they're gross simplifications. So, so all our mental models are wrong. Um, all the discoveries of science um, are basically, you know, they're useful, you know, characterizations that might, that, that 
whether they you know match the truth any truth is unknowable to us we can never know the thing in itself and so on so that's the the that you know that's the broadly the evolutionary epistemology so usefulness becomes a criteria so instead of you know hanging my hat on the falsibility criteria of um mm -hmm. uh popper i'd broaden you know i can broaden it out and say well usefulness is the critical thing so these grand schemas you know i'd come back to and say well mm -hmm. and and this is more akin to your claims for what you're saying you're saying your grand scheme is a, is a half at least you know at least does at least a half decent. I won't. I won't yeah, but, uh, I mean, I mean, I won't, I won't ask the obvious question if, if we were antagonistic, which is, to f tell me the half that it doesn't do decently. But the, the but yeah, sure. all these things. That, but so they're the criteria. Half decent means I can usefulness is mm -hmm. is what I would how I would define half decent. Usefulness is the critical thing. So then it becomes a question of, yeah, where is it useful? Where could it be more useful? And so on. To me, you know, the crit a critically important component of usefulness is the ability to make falsifiable predictions. Okay. Because that's what, for an, for an organism mm -hmm. evolving in the world, mm -hmm. uh, a look-ahead fun function you know, is this enormous evolutionary advance. At the moment, we have a deficient, you know, we have a, a limited look ahead function that can only look ahead insofar as the world happens to operate mechanistically. Mm -hmm. We need a, a much better look ahead function. And I, I just want to say this to uh, the, that the, that the second in life, that this cognition that enables the cognizing of complexity uh, is what's needed to see the to understand the evolutionary worldview in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, so, in effect, a major psychological transition that needs to occur in organisms that are, are needed to build uh, a global superorganism to hatch and develop a global superorganism uh, is the capacity to look ahead into com complex phenomena. And certain, you know, aspects of complexity uh, forever forever unknowable as far as I can see mm -hmm. but we need to be able to see attractors and how to access those attractors and how to build societies that manifest those attractors and so on so the that's where the you know the loops finally closed on all this that a major transition that humanity needs to go through as a matter of urgency is the second enlightenment is the emergence of the uh, complex cognition that enables us to become effective uh, evolutionary activists to birth the global superorganism um, and to know how to shape it and so on. So that sort of brings me to the end of... <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And in fact, I mean, you know, uh, for me, so the tree of knowledge uh, tracks the, maps the evolution of complexification in a particular way yeah. Um, that's very similar uh, to the processes of stacking the parts together to create a coordinated whole through a cooperative structure that governs the constraints of the operating processes. It says that there are also these very important network jumps through systems of information processing and communication networks. So, for example, we first get it with life 
at the DNA RNA cellular structure that becomes multicellular. Then we get a different shift at the level of mind operant processes that afford you capacity to move the organism as a whole with a nervous system computational control center, if you will. Then we get language, which is another jump then from, and the tree of knowledge then delineates that. And it says actually the 21st, the 20th century laid down this computational network of digital processing that then the 21st century is going to centralize. So it also says, if we're going to network ourselves together in this hierarchical structure, the medium of that is now beginning laid down in the interface between digital and human language structures. Okay, so then, then you would have the actual so what, potential what are, information. What are key next steps? Where do you stand on the need for a unified global system for hatching well, of your organism? I certainly think of that, that we should be oriented toward that. So the, the issue is, is that derivable from your big picture? Um, is it demanded by it? Demanded would be too strong. Yeah. So, uh, so that, that's what I, when I'm looking at your big picture, that's what I'm, you know, I'm looking at causal microfoundations, which mm-hmm. you have. You have causal microfoundations within the big picture. So that takes it beyond, you know, Tehard Deshadi and, and most theosophical society schemas. Uh, but then the, then the second step is predictions, uh, falsified predictions about where we need to go in the future. So right. well, well my, 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 my pause on that, or at least where I'm coming from, is actually our metaphysics and ontology is really screwed up. Science broke our metaphysics and ontology. And actually, if we're going to map it, we actually have to push a pause a little bit to get our descriptive metaphysics and ontology correct. If we get our descriptive metaphysics and ontology correct, we'll be in a much better place to describe these issues without equivocation, and then we'll be able to think better about them. My general sense is you're right in relationship to the direction that we need to go. Um, the, the calling for it is felt in my soul. At the same time, the specification that is afforded by it, I just there's a lot more reflection that I would need to be engaged in in relationship to say demanded. Um, but those are, you know, I'm definitely with you in terms of like, I mean, my whole yeah. the sort of like, hey, we're at a fifth joint point. We need a second enlightenment. The world's at a very, very key element. And to the extent that we get a higher order metasynthetic view of our essence and then utilize that to coordinate our interests at a global level, fuck yeah, I'm all for that. So, so yeah, the, the evolutionary worldview that I've outlined does demand certain things. It demands them in the sense that they're needed if we are to survive and thrive into the future. Because evolutionary, the big picture evolution is identifying what's needed to survive and thrive. So it demands these things. There is a role. As I said, the extraordinary thing about this whole process is that for it to be completed successfully, that is to produce a complex, evolvable, agentic superorganism, for that process to be completed has demands that humanity wake up wake up to the evolutionary worldview uh, and see what's needed. Won't happen otherwise. It's the process will be aborted on this planet. We will, we will be stillborn. We will not enter the next you know, level in the stack because the, the next level in the stack, at a, at a higher level, if, if, the, if there is a higher level of other global superorganisms, then the, the most significant thing for them and their evolvability is contact with and learning from 
independently evolved systems that have different perspectives and so on. So if you want to have a global a brain a brain at the level of the galaxy, now there there's a prediction you can if, if that prediction <laughs> if we reach a global intelligence and then plug into the network of universal global intelligences, then I'll be like, damn, John, you were onto that thing. That's that's right. <laughs> So that's my bold. And there, prediction. that is a bold prediction. I'll popper you and say I'll bow down to that if that prediction comes true in our lifetime. <laughs> so, 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 well, it in your lifetime depends how long you live. Well, the, you know, if it's, it's outside just, my lifetime, it's going to be hard for me to say you confirmed it. <laughs> that's right. So, just to bowl up another um, challenge here, the you know. The, and I understand your, you know, how you've characterized the benefit of your system. But uh, what I would like, what, what I'm in, what, you know, what I'm particularly would be particularly interested in is um, given the domains that you've looked at, is you you see the need for a second enlightenment. The question is what will the what will constitute the second enlightenment? What will be the form of cognition that underpins it? And how can this be scaffolded? So getting very, very practical very, very practical. Uh, so it's like being at the first enlightenment before anyone else is and saying, mm -hmm. ah, the you know, analytic rational cognition is the way to go. Yep. There's all this potential for us to manipulate reality and achieve our goals and so on, this look yep. ahead function. So no longer will we will be will we be evolving by looking in the rear view mirror, which is what selection is, looking at past consequences, we'll be looking at the future. So someone sitting down at the first enlightenment and saying, Okay, what what are the nuts and bolts of this form of cognition? What software do we need to install in others? How will we do it? That's the position we are for the second enlightenment now. Yep. Um, so we've only probably got a minute left. So if you can tell me how to do it, I can retire. I can retire. <laughs> you can take well, over. I, I think that I think the architecture of that structure, that meta perspective that affords an orientation of knowledge and wisdom into the future that creates a particular kind of higher order synthesis that affords us constraints and evolvability, giving us both freedom and cooperation is a very, very nice set of ingredients in relation, okay? Uh, all I'm saying is if we actually, yes, take the tapestry of individuals that are seeing this, have an outline for where we can place it to afford a diminishing of our equivocation around key terms, get clearer about relationship to that, that is a tapestry that I bring to bear a clear descriptive metaphysical grounding that specifies the ontology of things like the mental relative to behavioral. Like what the fuck do we mean by those terms? I actually now know what we mean by those terms or what we ought to mean with coherence. If we can achieve that, that's one particular facet. I believe lots of us are bringing particular facets. And then the question is, can we actually coordinate our synthetic views to weave together a tapestry that forms a ground that can then be evolvable toward the future. Hey, we do that, then yeah, we will be on the cusp of a second enlightenment. Okay, so yeah, now I get clearly now how you characterize your grand scheme. And it's basically creating the foundations from which, you know, these, the keys issue of the, of the second enlightenment, for example, can be effectively answered because it can't, you know, now. And so you're creating the foundations for that, which is wonderful work. Good luck with it. <laughs> All right. And then we'll, just, we'll get the future arc and then we'll see how this thing turns out in a popper fashion. <laughs> That's right. All right. And, and I will watch, I will watch with the extraordinary interest as you progress. So, and I look forward to circling back. This is a wonderful conversation. I think you've laid out 
the manifesto that you did, the arrow that we need to uh, attend to, the two key principles uh, of higher-order cooperation and evolvability as the fundamental microcausal structure and the implications of that that we should be leaning towards. Beautiful stuff, John. Really appreciate it. Wonderful. And it's been wonderful talking to you. Enjoy it. We'll be back in touch. And thanks so much for your coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. Great. All right. Take care.